Chapter Two, Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lemoyne, GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe, by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Two. A monk there was, a fair for the maestry, an outrider that loved venery, a manly man to be an abbot able. Full many a dainty horse had he in stable, and when he rode, men might his bridle hear, jingling in a whistling wind as clear, and eke as loud as doth the chapel bell. There, as this lord was keeper of the cell. Chaucer. Notwithstanding the occasional exhortation and chiding of his companion, the noise of the horseman's feet continuing to approach, Wamba could not be prevented from lingering occasionally on the road, upon every pretense which occurred. Now catching from the hazel a cluster of half-ripe nuts. And now turning his head to leer after a cottage maiden who crossed their path, the horsemen therefore soon overtook them on the road. Their numbers amounted to ten men, of whom the two who rode foremost seemed to be persons of considerable importance, and the others their attendants. It was not difficult to ascertain the condition and character of one of these personages. He was obviously an ecclesiastic of high rank. His dress was that of a Cistercian monk, but composed of materials much finer than those which the rule of that order admitted. His mantle and hood were of the best Flanders cloth, and fell in ample and not ungraceful folds around a handsome though somewhat corpulent person. His countenance bore as little the marks of self-denial as his habit indicated contempt of worldly splendor. His features might have been called good had there not lurked under the penthouse of his eye that sly epicurean twinkle which indicates the cautious voluptuary. In other respects, his profession and situation had taught him a ready command over his countenance, which he could contract at pleasure into solemnity, although its natural expression was that of good-humored social indulgence. In defiance of conventual rules and the edicts of popes and councils, the sleeves of this dignitary were lined and turned up with rich furs, his mantle secured at the throat with a golden clasp, and the whole dress proper to his order as much refined upon and ornamented as that of a Quaker beauty of the present day, who, while she retains the garb and costume of her sect, continues to give to its simplicity, by the choice of materials and the mode of disposing them, a certain air of coquettish attraction, savouring but too much of the vanities of the world. This worthy churchman rode upon a well-fed, ambling mule, whose furniture was highly decorated, and whose bridle, according to the fashion of the day, was ornamented with silver bells. In his seat he had nothing of the awkwardness of the convent but displayed the easy and habitual grace of a well-trained horseman. Indeed, it seemed that so humble a conveyance as a mule, in however good case, 
and however well broken to a pleasant and accommodating amble, was only used by the gallant monk for travelling on the road. A lay-brother, one of those who followed in the train, had for his use on other occasions one of the most handsome Spanish genets ever bred in Andalusia, which merchants used at the time to import with great trouble and risk for the use of persons of wealth and distinction. The saddle and housings of this superb palfrey were covered by a long footcloth which reached nearly to the ground, and on which were richly embroidered mitres, crosses, and other ecclesiastical emblems. Another lay-brother led a sumpter mule, loaded probably with his superior's baggage, and two monks of his own order, of inferior station, rode together in the rear, laughing and conversing with each other, without taking much notice of the other members of the cavalcade. The companion of the church dignitary was a man past forty, thin, strong, tall, and muscular. An athletic figure which long fatigue and constant exercise seemed to have left none of the softer part of the human form, having reduced the whole to brawn, bones, and sinews, which had sustained a thousand toils, and were ready to dare a thousand more. His head was covered with a scarlet cap, faced with fur, of that kind which the French call mortier, from its resemblance to the shape of an inverted mortar. His countenance was therefore fully displayed, and its expression was calculated to impress a degree of awe, if not fear, upon strangers. High features, naturally strong and powerfully impressive, had been burnt almost into negro blackness by constant exposure to the tropical sun, and might in their ordinary state be said to slumber after the storm of passion had passed away. But the projection of the veins of the forehead, the readiness with which the upper lip and its thick black moustaches quivered upon the slightest emotion, plainly intimated that the tempest might be again and easily awakened. His keen, piercing, dark eyes told in every glance a history of difficulties subdued and dangers dared and seemed to challenge opposition to his wishes, for the pleasure of sweeping it from his road by a determined exertion of courage and of will. A deep scar on his brow gave additional sternness to his countenance, and a sinister expression to one of his eyes, which had been slightly injured on the same occasion, and of which the vision, though perfect, was in a slight and partial degree distorted. The upper dress of this personage resembled that of his companion in shape, being a long monastic mantle, but the colour being scarlet showed that he did not belong to any of the four regular orders of monks. On the right shoulder of the mantle there was cut in white cloth a cross of a peculiar form. This upper robe concealed what at first view seemed rather inconsistent with its form, a shirt, namely, of linked mail with sleeves and gloves of the same, curiously plaited and interwoven, as flexible to the body as those which are now wrought in the stocking-loom out of less obdurate materials. The forepart of his thighs, where the folds of his mantle permitted them to be seen, were also covered with linked mail. The knees and feet were defended by splints, or thin plates of steel, ingeniously jointed upon each other and male hose reaching from the ankle to the knee effectually protected the legs, and completed the rider's defensive armour. 
In his girdle he wore a long and double-edged dagger, which was the only offensive weapon about his person. He rode not a mule like his companion, but a strong hackney for the road, to save his gallant war-horse, which a squire led behind, fully accoutred for battle, with a chamfron or plated headpiece upon his head, having a short spike projecting from the front. On one side of the saddle hung a short battle-axe, richly inlaid with damascene carving. On the other of the rider's plumed headpiece, and hood of mail with a long two-handed sword used by the chivalry of the period. A second squire held aloft his master's lance, from the extremity of which fluttered a small banderole or streamer bearing a cross of the same form with that embroidered upon his cloak. He also carried his small triangular shield, broad enough at the top to protect the breast, and from thence diminishing to a point. It was covered with a scarlet cloth, which prevented the device from being seen. These two squires were followed by two attendants, whose dark visages, white turbans, and the oriental form of their garments, showed them to be natives of some distant eastern country. The whole appearance of this warrior and his retinue was wild and outlandish. The dress of his squires were gorgeous, and his eastern attendants wore silver collars round their throats, and bracelets of the same metal upon their swarthy legs and arms, of which the latter were naked from the elbow, and the former from mid-leg to ankle. Silk and embroidery distinguished their dresses, and marked the wealth and importance of their master, forming at the same time a striking contrast with the martial simplicity of his own attire. They were armed with crooked sabres, having the hilt and baldric inlaid with gold, and matched with Turkish daggers of yet more costly workmanship. Each of them bore at his saddle-bow a bundle of darts or javelins, about four feet in length, having sharp steel heads, a weapon much use in among the Saracens, and of which the memory is yet preserved in the martial exercise called El Jerid, still practised in the eastern countries. The steeds of these attendants were in appearance as foreign as their riders. They were of Saracen origin, and consequently of Arabian descent, and their fine slender limbs, small fetlocks, thin manes, and easy springy motion formed a marked contrast with the large jointed heavy horses, of which the race was cultivated in Flanders and in Normandy, for mounting the men-at-arms of the period in all the panoply of plate and mail and which, placed by the side of those eastern coursers, might have passed for a personification of substance and of shadow. The singular appearance of this cavalcade not only attracted the curiosity of Wamba, but excited even that of his less volatile companion. The monk he instantly knew to be prior of Jorvaux Abbey, well known for many miles around as a lover of the chase, of the banquet, and, if fame did him not wrong, of other worldly pleasures still more inconsistent with his monastic vows. Yet so loose were the ideas of the times respecting the conduct of the clergy, whether secular or regular, that the prior Aymer maintained a fair character in the neighbourhood of his abbey. His free and jovial temper, and the readiness with which he granted absolution from all ordinary delinquencies, rendered him a favourite among the nobility and principal gentry, to several of whom he was allied by birth, being of a distinguished Norman family. 
The ladies in particular were not disposed to scan too nicely the morals of a man who was a professed admirer of their sex, and who possessed many means of dispelling the ennui which was too apt to intrude upon the halls and bowers of an ancient feudal castle. The prior mingled in the sports of the field with more than due eagerness, and was allowed to possess the best-trained hawks and the fleetest greyhounds in the north riding, circumstances which strongly recommended him to the youthful gentry. With the old he had another part to play, which, when needful, he could sustain with great decorum. His knowledge of books, however superficial, was sufficient to impress upon their ignorance respect for his supposed learning, and the gravity of his deportment and language, with the high tone which he exerted in setting forth the authority of the church and of the priesthood, impressed them no less with an opinion of his sanctity. Even the common people, the severest critics of the conduct of their betters, had commiseration with the follies of prior Aymer. He was generous, and charity, as it is well known, covereth a multitude of sins, in another sense than that in which it is said to do so in Scripture. The revenues of the monastery, of which a large part was at his disposal, while they gave him the means of supplying his own very considerable expenses, afforded also those largesses which he bestowed among the peasantry, and with which he frequently relieved the distresses of the oppressed. If Prior Aymer rode hard in the chase, or remained long at the banquet, if Prior Aymer was seen at the early peep of dawn to enter the postern of the abbey, as he glided home from some rendezvous which had occupied the hours of darkness, men only shrugged up their shoulders, and reconciled themselves to his irregularities, by recollecting that the same were practised by many of his brethren, who had no redeeming qualities whatsoever to atone for them. Prior Aymer, therefore, and his character, were well known to our Saxon serfs, who made their rude obeisance, and received his Benedicte Mephils in return. But the singular appearance of his companion and his attendants arrested their attention, and excited their wonder and they could scarcely attend to the prior of Jorvaux's question, when he demanded if they knew of any place of harbourage in the vicinity. So much were they surprised at the half-monastic, half-military appearance of the swarthy stranger, and at the uncouth dress and arms of his eastern attendants. It is probable, too, that the language in which the benediction was conferred, and the information asked, sounded ungracious, though not probably unintelligible, in the ears of the Saxon peasants. "'I asked you, my children,' said the prior, raising his voice, and using the lingua franca, or mixed language, in which the Norman and Saxon races conversed with each other, "'if there be in this neighbourhood any good man who, for the love of God and devotion to Mother Church, will give two of her humblest servants, with their train, a night's hospitality and refreshment?" This he spoke with a tone of conscious importance, which formed a strong contrast to the modest terms which he thought it proper to employ. Two of the humblest servants of Mother Church, repeated Wamba to himself. But, fool as he was, taking care not to make his observation audible. I should like to see her seneschals, her chief butlers, and her other principal domestics." After this internal commentary on the prior's speech, he raised his eyes, and replied to the question which had been put. 
If the reverend fathers, he said, loved good cheer and soft lodging, few miles of riding would carry them to the priory of Brinksworth, where their quality could not but secure them the most honourable reception, or, if they preferred spending a penitential evening, they might turn down yonder wild glade, which would bring them to the hermitage of Copmanhurst, where a pious anchoret would make them sharers for the night of the shelter of his roof and the benefit of his prayers. The prior shook his head at both proposals. "'Mine honest friend,' said he, "'if the jangling of thy bells had not dizzied thine understanding, thou mightst know the clericus clericum non decimat—that is to say, we churchmen do not exhaust each other's hospitality, but rather require that of the laity, giving them thus an opportunity to serve God in honouring and relieving his appointed servants. It is true, replied Wamba, that I, being but an ass, am nevertheless honoured to bear the bells as well as your reverence's mule. Notwithstanding, I did not conceive that the charity of Mother Church and her servants might be said, with other charity, to begin at home. A truce to thine insolence, fellow, said the armed rider, breaking in on his prattle with a high and stern voice, and tell us, if thou canst, the road to— How called you your Franklin, Prior Aimer? Cedric, answered the prior. Cedric the Saxon, tell me, good fellow, are we near his dwelling, and can you show us the road? The road will be uneasy to find, answered Gurth, who broke silence for the first time, and the family of Cedric retire early to rest. Truth, tell not me, fellow, said the military rider. Tis easy for them to arise and supply the wants of travellers such as we are, who will not stoop to beg the hospitality which we have a right to command. I know not, said Gurth sullenly, if I should show the way to my master's house to those who demand as a right the shelter which most are fain to ask as a favour. Do you dispute with me, slave? said the soldier, and, setting spurs to his horse, he caused him make a demi-volt across the path, raising at the same time the riding-rod which he held in his hand, with a purpose of chastising what he considered as the insolence of the peasant. Gurth darted at him a savage and revengeful scowl, and with a fierce yet hesitating motion laid his hand on the haft of his knife. But the interference of Prior Aymer, who pushed his mule betwixt his companion and the swineherd, prevented the meditated violence. "'Nay, by St. Mary, Brother Brian, you must not think you are now in Palestine, predominating over heathen Turks and infidel Saracens. We islanders love not blows, save those of the Holy Church, who chasteneth whom she loveth. Tell me, good fellow,' said he to Wamba, and seconded his speech by a small piece of silver coin. "'The way to Cedric the Saxons.' You cannot be ignorant of it, and it is your duty to direct the wanderer, even when his character is less sanctified than ours. "'In truth, venerable father,' answered the jester, "'the Saracen head of your right reverend companion has frightened out of mine the way home. I am not sure I shall get there to-night myself.' "'Tush!' said the abbot. "'Thou canst tell us if thou wilt.' 
This reverend brother has been all his life engaged in fighting among the Saracens for the recovery of the Holy Sepulchre. He is of the order of Knights Templars, whom you may have heard of. He is half a monk, half a soldier. If he is but half a monk, said the jester, he should not be wholly unreasonable with those whom he meets upon the road, even if they should be in no hurry to answer questions that no way concern them. I forgive thy wit, replied the abbot, on condition thou wilt show me the way to Cedric's mansion. Well, then, answered Wamba, your reverence must hold on this path till you come to a sunken cross, of which scarce a cubit's length remains above ground. Then take the path to the left, for there are four which meet at sunken cross, and I trust your reverence will obtain shelter before the storm comes on. The abbot thanked his sage adviser, and the cavalcade, setting spurs to their horses, rode on as men who do wish to reach their inn before the bursting of a night's storm. As their horses' hooves died away, Gurth said to his companion, "'If they follow thy wise direction, the reverend fathers will hardly reach Rotherwood this night.' "'No,' said the jester, grinning. "'But they may reach Sheffield if they have good luck.' and that is as fit a place for them. I am not so bad a woodsman as to show the dog where the deer lies, if I have no mind he should chase him. Thou art right, said Gurth. It were ill that Aymer saw the Lady Rowena, and it were worse, it may be, for Cedric to quarrel, as is most likely he would with this military monk. But, like good servants, let us hear and see and say nothing." We returned to the riders, who had soon left the bondsmen far behind them, and who maintained the following conversation in the Norman-French language, usually employed by the superior classes, with the exception of the few who were still inclined to boast their Saxon descent. "'What mean these fellows by their capricious insolence?' said the Templar to the Cistercian. "'And why did you prevent me from chastising it?' "'Mary, Brother Brian,' replied the prior. Touching the one of them, it were hard for me to render a reason for a fool speaking according to his folly, and the other churl is of that savage, fierce, intractable race, some of whom, as I have often told you, are still to be found among the descendants of the conquered Saxons, and whose supreme pleasure it is to testify, by all means in their power, their aversion to their conquerors. I would soon have beat him into courtesy, I am accustomed to deal with such spirits. Our Turkish captives are as fierce and intractable as Odin himself could have been. Yet two months in my household, under the management of my master of the slaves, has made them humble, submissive, serviceable, and observant of your will. Mary, sir, you must beware of the poison and the dagger, for they use either with free will when you give them the slightest opportunity. I but— answered Prior Aymer. Every land has its own manners and fashions. And besides that beating, this fellow could procure us no information respecting the road to Cedric's house. It would have been sure to have established a quarrel betwixt you and him had we found our way thither. Remember what I told you. This wealthy Franklin is proud, fierce, jealous, and irritable, a withstander of the nobility, and even of his neighbours, Reginald Frontbeuf, and Philip Malvoisin, who are no babes to strive with. 
He stands up so sternly for the privileges of his race, and is so proud of his uninterrupted descent from hereward, a renowned champion of the Heptarchy, that he is universally called Cedric the Saxon, and makes a boast of his belonging to a people from whom many others endeavour to hide their descent, lest they should encounter a share of the vo victis, or severities imposed upon the vanquished. Prior Aymer, said the Templar, you are a man of gallantry, learned in the study of beauty, and as expert as a troubadour in all manners concerning the arets of love. But shall I expect much beauty in this celebrated Rowena, to counterbalance the self-denial and forbearance which I must exert, if I am to court the favour of such a seditious churl as you have described her father Cedric? Cedric is not her father, replied the prior, and is but of remote relation. She is descended from higher blood than even he pretends to, and is but distantly connected with him by birth. Her guardian, however, he is, self-constituted as I believe. But his ward is as dear to him as if she were his own child. Of her beauty you shall soon be judge, and if the purity of her complexion, and the majestic yet soft expression of a mild blue eye, do not chase from your memory the black-tressed girls of Palestine, aye, or the huris of gold Mahound paradise. I am an infidel, and no true son of the church. Should your boasted beauty, said the Templar, be weighed in the balance and found wanting, you know our wager. My gold collar, answered the prior, against ten butts of Chian wine. They are mine as securely as if they were already in the convent vaults, under the key of old Dennis the cellarer. And I am myself to be judge, said the Templar, and I am only to be convinced on my own admission that I have seen no maiden so beautiful since Pentecost was a twelvemonth. Ran it not so? Prior, your collar is in danger. I will wear it over my gorget in the lists of Ashby de la Zouche. Win it fairly, said the prior, and wear it as ye will. I will trust your giving true response, on your word as a knight and as a churchman. Yet, brother, take my advice, and file your tongue to a little more courtesy than your habits of predominating over infidel captives and eastern bondsmen have accustomed you. Cedric the Saxon, if offended, and he is no way slack in taking offence, is a man who, without respect to your knighthood, my high office or the sanctity of either, would clear his house of us, and send us to lodge with the larks, though the hour were midnight. And be careful how you look on Rowena, whom he cherishes with the most jealous care. And he take the least alarm in that quarter, we are but lost men. It is said he banished his only son from his family for lifting his eyes in the way of affection towards this beauty who may be worshipped, it seems, at a distance, but is not to be approached with other thoughts than such as we bring to the shrine of the Blessed Virgin. "'Well, you have said enough,' answered the Templar. "'I will for a night put on the needful restraint, and deport me as meekly as a maiden. But as for the fear of his expelling us by violence, myself and squires, with Hamet and Abdallah, will warrant you against that disgrace. Doubt not that we shall be strong enough to make good our quarters.' "'We must not let it come so far,' answered the prior. Uh, "'But here is the clown's sunken cross, and the night is so dark that we can hardly see which of the roads we are to follow. He bid us turn, I think, to the left.' "'To the right,' 
said Brian, to the best of my remembrance. To the left, certainly the left. I remember his pointing with his wooden sword. Ay, but he held his sword in his left hand, and so pointed across his body with it, said the Templar. Each maintained his opinion with sufficient obstinacy, as is usual in all such cases. The attendants were appealed to, but they had not been near enough to hear Wamba's directions. At length Brian remarked, what had first escaped him in the twilight. "'Here is someone either asleep or lying dead at the foot of this cross. Hugo, stir him with the butt-end of thy lance.' This was no sooner done than the figure arose, exclaiming in good French, "'Whosoever thou art, it is discourteous in you to disturb my thoughts.' "'We did but wish to ask you,' said the prior, "'the road to the Rotherwood, the abode of Cedric the Saxon.' "'I myself am bound thither,' replied the stranger. "'And if I had a horse I would be your guide, "'for the way is somewhat intricate, though perfectly well known to me.' "'Thou shalt have both thanks and reward, my friend,' said the prior, "'if thou wilt bring us to Cedric's in safety.' "'And he caused one of his attendants to mount his own led horse, "'and give that upon which he had hitherto ridden to the stranger, "'who was to serve for our guide.' Their conductor pursued an opposite road from that which Wamba had recommended for the purpose of misleading them. The path soon led deeper into the woodland, and crossed more than one brook, the approach to which was rendered perilous by the marches through which it flowed. But the stranger seemed to know, as if by instinct, the soundest ground and the safest points of passage, and, by dint of caution and attention, brought the party safely into a wider avenue than any they had yet seen, and, pointing to a large, low, irregular building at the upper extremity, he said to the prior, "'Yonder is Rotherwood, the dwelling of Cedric the Saxon.' This was a joyful intimation to Aymer, whose nerves were none of the strongest, and who had suffered such agitation and alarm in the course of passing through the dangerous bogs that he had not yet had the curiosity to ask his guide a single question. Finding himself now at his ease and near shelter, his curiosity began to awake, and he demanded of the guide who and what he was. A palmer just returned from the Holy Land, was the answer. You had better have tarried there to fight for the recovery of the Holy Sepulchre, said the Templar. "'True, reverend Sir Knight,' answered the palmer, to whom the appearance of the Templar seemed perfectly familiar. "'But when those who are under oath to recover the holy city are found travelling at such distance from the scene of their duties, can you wonder that a peaceful peasant like me should decline the task which they have abandoned?' The Templar would have made an angry reply but was interrupted by the prior, who again expressed his astonishment that their guide, after such a long absence, should be so perfectly acquainted with the passes of the forest. "'I was born a native of these parts,' answered their guide, and as he made the reply they stood before the mansion of Cedric, a low, irregular building, containing several courtyards or enclosures, extending over a considerable space of ground, and which, though its size argued the inhabitant to be a person of wealth, 
differed entirely from the tall, turreted, and castellated buildings in which the Norman nobility resided, and which had become the universal style of architecture throughout England. Rotherwood was not, however, without defences. No habitation in that disturbed period could have been so without the risk of being plundered and burnt before the next morning. A deep fosse, or ditch, was drawn round the whole building, and filled with water from a neighbouring stream. A double stockade, or palisade, composed of pointed beams, which the adjacent forest supplied, defended the outer and inner bank of the trench. There was an entrance from the west through the outer stockade, which communicated by a drawbridge with a similar opening in the interior defences. Some precautions had been taken to place those entrances under the protection of protecting angles, by which they might be flanked in case of need by archers or slingers. Before this entrance the Templar wound his horn loudly, for the rain, which had long threatened, began now to descend with great violence. End of chapter 2